There appears to be movement in the U.S. to bring less expensive versions of biotech drugs to market, but the brand name drug industry wants these so-called biosimilars to adhere to rigorous safety and efficacy standards currently not built into U.S. laws. You're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Bruce Japson, the healthcare reporter with the Chicago Tribune, and joining me today is Tom DeLinge. Mr. DeLinge is Vice President and General Counsel of the Biotechnology Industry Organization. He became Bio's Vice President and General Counsel in May 2006, and he served as Acting General Counsel from February 2006 and as Deputy General Counsel from November 2005. He has many years of regulatory experience as well as work on the Hill. Tom served as the Chief Counsel and Policy Director for the House Homeland Security Committee and previously served as Senior Counsel for the House Energy and Commerce Committee. On the Hill, he has been a leading expert in the area of public health emergency preparedness. We're so glad to have him on our show. The biotechnology industry organization, as you know, represents more than 1,200 biotechnology companies, not just in the U.S., but around the world. Tom DeLinge, welcome to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you, Bruce. Thanks for this opportunity. Well, it's great to have you here, and he's joining us from our nation's capital in Washington, D.C., where there is so much going on. And one of the key things that is important, not only for consumers and their physicians, but the biotech industry. Um, A lot of people may not realize it, but biotech drugs that just came on the scene in the 80s were not part of the Hatch-Waxman Act, which largely allowed for generics, if you will, to be created from chemical-derived drugs, you know, Zoloft, Zocor, one day maybe Lipitor. So tell us a little bit about the legislation that's being discussed and where we might be headed here and, and what the industry wants. Sure, Bruce. And let me say at the outset that, that it is very important that we do establish a generic-like approval process for, for biologics in this country. Biologics are um, a newer form of medicine, as you mentioned. They are, if you think about vaccines, they are they're derived from living organisms. So they are not like your kind of typical pill that you would swallow, a, a, which is just a bunch of chemical compounds arranged in a particular order. These are much more complicated to both develop and to manufacture, and they're usually physician-administered. They're usually not taken just in an oral pill. Of course, there's exceptions to everything, but that generally is, if you think about a biologic, that's how you should think about it. And so when Congress created the Hatch-Waxman regime for generic drugs 25 years ago, biologics were just entering into our lexicon. And so it wasn't contemplated at that time that you could ever have kind of a copy of a biologic or even something that was similar enough that you would ever want an abbreviated scientific and regulatory process for their approval. As you know, Bruce, the way that generic drugs are approved today, it's a a very simple process. So because they they can show that they are identical chemically to an original product. And so they can go to the FDA and say, we don't need to do all of those same clinical trials. We we shouldn't have to do all of the research and development that the innovator had to do because we can prove that we're identical to that drug. And therefore, we should be approved based on us just showing that we are identical rather than having to redo all the safety and efficacy trials. That's the model we have today under Hatch-Waxman. It works very well, and it's, it's brought down drug prices in this country. It's created great competition. So we're, we're supportive of that. 
We're also in support of creating a similar type process for biologics now 25 years later when we can look back and say, okay, now we've learned enough about these products that we know you can make similar versions that would, that would allow a kind of a copycat, if you will, not to have to go through the entire process that the original innovator did. So we support that as an industry. We want to see that, that legislation passed, and we're hopeful that it'll be passed by the end of the year. And tell us, so one of the areas, there are a lot of biotech drugs that have been on the market for, you know, 15, 20 years and so forth. And that would seem to be enough time to develop a biosimilar, as you say. Where is some of the friction in the bill? I know that the bills are far along. Tell me if you could, the the whole idea of the 12 years, uh, seven years where the companies would have a, a certain amount of, I know market exclusivity might not be the right word, but how long are we talking that the biotech drugs would have on the market before a biosimilar could be created. Sure. And let me first say that whatever period of years that Congress comes up with in terms of the protection that will be afforded to the original innovators, that would start running from the date of their FDA approval. So the products that you mentioned that are been on the market for 15, 20 years from now, this whole debate about whether there's 12 years of exclusivity or, or seven years or five years, that would be irrelevant to most of those products. And some of those products, in effect, depending on how the bill is passed and signed into law by the president, could have a, a cheaper alternative within the, within the next couple of years. Absolutely. And in fact, some of them have them in Europe already. Europe has taken the lead on this. They're ahead of the United States in terms of creating a pathway for the creation of these biosimilars. They started this process about five or six years ago in Europe. And they already have, I don't know the exact number, but a good number of biosimilars on the market today. And they're competing well and they're doing their job in Europe. So we know that this is possible. And we know that this competition can happen pretty quickly after we get a uh, pathway established in the United States. Well, if you're just joining us, or even if you're new to our channel, you're listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160. I'm Bruce Japson of the Chicago Tribune. I'm your host, and joining me today is Tom DeLinge. He's the Vice President and General Counsel for the Biotechnology Industry Organization, who a lot of us know as as Bio, which represents about 1,200 biotech companies, largely in the U.S., but certainly in more than 30 countries around the world. And we're talking about this whole idea to bring generic-like medications to market, not pills and capsules derived from chemicals like your Zocors and your Zolofts and your Prozacs, but these complicated drugs that quite frankly, costs tens of thousands of dollars a year. And what he's telling us is that that he believes there could be legislation this year that could offer cheaper and less expensive drugs to consumers. Um, but you brought up the whole idea in Europe. How is that going? And what would the drug industry, the, bio, the brand name biotech companies, like to see in a bill that is in the European process? If you could tell us a little bit about how that works. Sure. Europe, really, as I said, has been spearheading this, and they've done a really good job at both balancing the need to get biosimilars onto the market, but do so in a very scientifically justifiable way that protects patients and also protects incentives for future innovation, because we want to get cheaper products to patients today, but we don't want to forget about the patients of tomorrow who are waiting for therapies and cures to diseases for which we don't have currently available products. And that is really an important part of this balance. So Europe has created a system where they have a scientifically rigorous process. It does allow shortcuts based on what we know about the originator, but it does require clinical trials. It does require that the companies who say, I want to make a biosimilar, they do go through certain testing of their products. 
And they also impose post-market, meaning after approval, there's usually post-market requirements as well to kind of make sure that these products are working in the marketplace and in patients the way that we think they're going to work. So I think that's the first thing Europe has done. Secondly, Europe provides either 10 or 11 years, depending on the product, of exclusivity to the original innovator. They say, essentially, we're not going to approve one of these biosimilars until the innovator has been on the market for at least 10 years, and in many cases, 11 years. And so we think that is also an important part of the European regime. So it's both safety first and incentives for innovation. You've got to give that innovator some reason to invest all the $1.2 billion, billion with a B, dollars that it takes to get that successful product to the market. And they're not going to do that if a competitor, a copycat, can come in after a few years. You need to give a period of time for the innovator to recoup that investment. Now, the generic industry often talks about the biotech drugs that are out there. I mean, our, our listeners are savvy healthcare professionals. They know that a lot of these drugs generate billions of dollars. And one of the things that we found, you know, in the Vioxx situation with the pills and capsules is that there were not post-market studies of drugs. And also the clinical trials probably were not as broad and not as elaborate. So in Europe with the biotech drugs, which are more complex, the idea of patient trials for generics, that's a whole new idea sort of period. I mean, we don't have that at all with pills and capsules that are derived from chemicals, do we? That's right. In terms of generics, generics have to do very limited testing under FDA law. They have to basically do what's called bioequivalence testing. That just means you want to make sure that the generic compound absorbs into the bloodstream around the same way that the original product did. But that's it. And that's done in healthy individuals. Okay. So it's very small testing. With respect to biologics, there has to be much more testing in human beings of these products, not just for bioequivalence, but also for just pure safety issues. Um, Biologics tend to stimulate immune reactions. That's how they work. Think about it again. Think about a vaccine. And that's the purpose of the biologic. And so you have to be really careful that when you make changes, any kind of changes to an approved biologic, you have to make sure it's still going to really work in the body the same way and you're going to get the same desired reaction and you're not going to get negative reactions. And so it's really critical. It is absolutely critical that you have sufficient testing, both pre-market and then I think you also, as you're seeing in Europe, post-market as well. And that's true, quite honestly, I think we've learned over the course of uh, even in the United States and looking at regular drugs, that we have to have a better system for post-market surveillance in this country because whether it's Vioxx or any other product that you mentioned, you're never going to catch in clinical trials all of the potential problems. Whether you do a full set of clinical trials or an abbreviated set of clinical trials, there's just no way for kind of rare side effects that won't, won't pop up in the average person that's being in a clinical trial. For those rare side effects, you're just not going to catch them. So you need a good system of post-market surveillance. Well, what's interesting for our you know, patients and, of course, the physician listeners we have is that there actually will be clinical trials when a generic drug maker wants to make a biosimilar of, say, you know, Epogen or some of the rheumatoid arthritis drugs that are out there you know, once their patents expire, that there will actually be patient clinical trials with these generic-like drugs. Well, that's an important point because there were people in this debate, in the United States at least, that didn't want to require clinical trials. Where the bills are today, both in the House and the Senate, is that there's a presumption of clinical trials. It basically says the Secretary of HHS, the FDA commissioner, uh, you know, shall require that clinical trials be performed as part of approving a biosimilar. It does allow, both bills do allow the FDA commissioner the power to kind of waive those requirements or some of the requirements if it's shown that that's okay in the context of that application. 
But, you know, that, that was a big fight earlier last year. If, if you had asked me last year, where were we on that question? I'd say, I don't know. There were a lot of groups in this country that were pushing, saying that they should not be required to do any clinical trials. We thought that that was not scientifically justified and, quite honestly, from a patient perspective, uh, a really bad public policy choice that could have been made. So we're really hopeful now that there will be in the final version of the bill a requirement for clinical trials. And what do they do in Europe? I mean, do they just say, okay, hey, we're going to study a couple hundred patients for six months? Or how do they do that for some of the generic like biotech drugs that are on the market over there already? It depends on the product. Some of them, they require both safety and efficacy, meaning effectiveness trials. Others, they just require safety trials. Some can be up to a year. Some can be shorter. It really is a a case-by-case situation, but they basically have taken this out of politics and they've focused on the science. And that's what we've been asking the Congress to do is don't get into this and think about this as a political fight between competing parties. Think about it from a, as a scientist, think about it as a patient, and say, what's best for patients? And we've got to make sure that we look at each class of products differently, separately, and say, what is best in terms of this product? What do we know about it? How much testing should we require? And also, let me just handicap this, if, if you will. Do you think that there has been enough back and forth over the last couple of years that there will be legislation in this regard, that there will be a, a bill that will have some less expensive biotech drugs for physicians and their patients in the next year or so? I believe that if we can get broader health care reform done this year, that, that biosimilars will be part of that. If for some reason the health care reform bill does not go forward, then I think we might not see a separate biosimilars bill this year. But I do believe that health care reform is going to go forward, and I think that biosimilars will be part of that. And we're very optimistic that when you look at the bills that were passed by the House Committee and the Senate committee, the committees of jurisdiction in those bodies, passed by overwhelming bipartisan majorities in both cases, though they created responsible pathways for the approval of biosimilars that both protect patients, will lead to greater competition and reduce costs, and importantly, protect those incentives for future innovation so that we have the next wave of biotech breakthroughs for cancer and for Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and diabetes and multiple sclerosis and all the other diseases that biotech products are trying to cure. And one of the key things that you did bring up relative to this bill is that there has been some bipartisan talk (laughs) and bills and language, uh, which is very interesting given the whole health care reform debate. Well, with that, I would like to thank Tom DeLinge, who has been our guest. We've been talking about the effort on the part of the brand name drug industry, as well as their generic counterparts and members of Congress to bring a less expensive biotech drugs on the market, some of the most expensive, yet some of the most important and life-saving medications to market. I'd like to thank Tom DeLynch, who's been our guest. He's a general counsel of the Biotechnology Industry Organization, which represents more than 1,200 biotechnology companies. I'm Bruce Japson of the Chicago Tribune. I've been your host, and you've been listening to ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ReachMD, online, on demand, and on the air. Please visit us at ReachMD.com, and I'd like to thank you today for listening.